welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. In this episode, I had the privilege and pleasure of having a conversation with my colleague and friend, and also the Nobel Laureate, astronomer, John Mather. John has been involved in important experiments in space that test our fundamental understanding of the universe for many decades. And about 40 years ago or so, he first began to design and eventually become one of the project scientists and principal investigators of a NASA experimental satellite called the Cosmic Background Explorer Satellite, which was designed to measure the cosmic background radiation coming from the Big Bang. And when that experiment, which allowed us to measure it with unprecedented accuracy in a way we couldn't do on Earth, first reported its results in the late 80s to the early 90s, it changed cosmology, turning it from an art to a science. Uh, uh, cosmic quantities that previously had been unmeasurable or only known to within a factor of two uncertainty could now be measured to several decimal places. And that changed everything. It changed our ability to constrain fundamental cosmological theory and our understanding of the early universe. It showed that the cosmic background radiation was a black body, which demonstrated that the universe had a finite temperature. And in fact, that black body radiation was the best measured black body in nature. And John was in charge of the experiment that measured that. Kobe also was able for the first time to measure the primordial density lumps that would later on coalesce to form galaxies. And that would allow us to constrain our theories of galaxy formation, including dark matter and everything else. And for those very important developments that changed everything about cosmology, John and his fellow scientist George Smoot were awarded the Nobel Prize. But John didn't rest on his laurels there. After that, he became the project scientist and lead scientist on the James Webb Space Telescope. And he helped spearhead that program to produce the telescope that's now been launched. And any day now, will present the first images of the universe, which allow us to look back to the earliest periods of star formation, as well as perhaps measuring new habitable planets in the universe. And John is continuing on with his interesting ideas for developing new devices that can explore and open up new windows on the universe. He's, as he discusses in the podcast, he's looking at new programs and new projects that might allow us to measure the atmospheres of extra extrasolar planets and look for, directly for life in a very exciting way. We had a wonderful conversation about his life in science and the current state of science, science today, and I hope you really enjoy it as much as I did. You can watch it ad-free on our Substack site, Critical Mass, or you can watch it on YouTube, or you can listen to it on any any uh, kind of uh, podcast platform. I hope you'll consider watching it on our Substack site and subscribing to the Substack site, Critical Mass, because that supports this podcast, but also the Origins Project Foundation, which makes the podcast possible. No matter whether you listen to it or watch it or where you listen to it or watch it, I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks. Well, thank you very, very much, John, for joining me for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to see you. I hope you're doing well. Well, thank you. We're having a good time over here. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of interesting things going on, and I want to talk about them. Uh, and But I do want to... This is an origins podcast, and I want to I want to I want to start with your origins, which I've been learning about a, a lot about in the last while that I didn't know. I, we've known each other for a long time, but through our science mostly. And um, 
And you've been a, actually, I should say, you've been a, a supporter on at various times on the board of my uh, of the Origins Project. So I, I uh, have appreciated your playing a role in various of our events. But I want to I want to hit you. You're a scientist, and one of the ways I want to things I like to find out from people is why they became scientists. Now I understand, in your case, you had role models. You as as uh, as scientists, your father taught at uh, Virginia, what was going to become Virginia Tech. Am I right? Yes, uh, he was there until I was about one year old. Oh, well, that and didn't have that much. My family moved, yeah, we, my family moved up to New Jersey to the Rutgers University Experiment Station uh, where they were studying dairy cows. That was my dad's profession. Uh, on the other side, my grandfather, uh, who I hardly knew, was a bacteriologist working for Abbott Laboratories uh, making penicillin. Wow. So... But you, but you hardly knew there. him. But, but you hardly knew him. But my understanding is, that nevertheless, he played an important role. You heard a lot about him in your family. Is that true? I heard what a hero he was, um, both as a nice guy and as a person who opposed the McCarthy era uh, purges that people were doing in those days, and well, uh, tried to protect his uh, fellow employees. Wow, so, now that um, is that's very important. That's almost harder than anything else. I, I admire that more than yeah. almost anything else because talent and doing science is based on maybe talent, enjoyment and hard work. But doing something like that is kind of brave in a way that really reflects character. That's really impressive. Yeah. So anyway, people loved him, uh, but he died very young. Oh. So on, on my dad's side, well, I asked him uh, uh, fairly late in life, well, how come you're a scientist? And he said, well, he was a kid in Southern Rhodesia. Um, oh. His dad was a missionary over there, uh, educator, educational missionary. And so he looked at the cows and he looked at the pictures of the cows in the magazines that came from Indiana and they were different. So it looks like there's something to be learned here. So he wanted to go and study how to make better cows and better milk. So that's how I ended up on a dairy research station of Rutgers University, uh, living a few hundred yards from a barn full of bulls and uh, laboratories. So that uh, was my beginning of learning about science. But uh, I ended up not learning any of either biology or, uh, or dairy cattle or anything like that, but uh, looking up at the sky, which was something you could do in the country uh, because the stars would come out. Unlike here in Washington, where the, you have to have a really good special night to see many of them. But anyway, you, yeah, it was that a was rural, my beginning. It was a rural... It was a rural environment. Yeah. I mean, there really were cows and you and, and you and you went. Did you did you ever milk them? Did you ever learn how to do anything like that? No, I didn't do that. Uh, that was uh, actually it's pretty hard work. Uh, yeah, my neighbors did it. And, uh, my neighbor buddies, uh, they got up at four o'clock in the morning to help milk the cows. Wow. Uh, so they were strong and healthy and athletic and uh, they could win the wrestling matches and uh, little league baseball. But no, I was the opposite. I stayed well, indoors. I studied my books and my <laughs> radios and my my lens kits from Edmund Scientific, so I could build my own telescopes. So I was just a different kid, but uh, I was given many given many opportunities, even out there in the country. Yeah, no, I want to go through those opportunities because you were quite fortunate. Uh, Sometimes I have to say, I spent a week on a farm when I was a kid, and it was enough to teach me that I never wanted to be a farmer. I think seeing the four in the morning and the working all day was enough to teach me, convince me there must be other ways to, to, to do things, if, even if my inclinations hadn't been academic, which they were. But you, you know, the farm, let me just, before I get to the, the, the opportunities you had on the farm and, and, and in your life, which I, I was really um, pleased to see 
and interested to see all of those things. I, I know I, partly because I related to them. I was given a lot of opportunities in enrichment programs, and that really had an impact on me. And I, I can see it was the same thing for you. But did your father or mother, did they encourage you to be a son? Your mother was a teacher of French, right? Uh, is that true? No, actually, by the time I knew her, she was a teacher of first grade. Oh, okay. So did she, she teach you? Ended up, um, no. Oh, okay. I was never in one of her classes. Oh, okay. So, so my folks uh, weren't actively involved in directing me to do anything. They didn't. They didn't need to encourage me to be a scientist, but they did get me uh, opportunities. Okay. Oh, would you like to do this? Oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. How about? Would you like to do that? Yeah, I'd like to do that. Oh, and at one great. point, I did want to get some uh, electronic parts for my um, my high school science fair project. So yeah, they got me some parts. Oh. Um, and I had a ninth grade biology project, which required uh, getting some baby mat rats and uh, feeding them different things. So my dad had access to those kinds of things. So uh, I had eight little baby rats that lived in the kitchen for a few weeks while I studied <laughs> what they ate. They were oh, that, oh, that's great, encouraging you. And they could clearly could tell which way your interests were. Um, but yeah. by the way, did you did you read any books about science? Did that encourage you at all, or or was oh, it just? Yeah, all the time. Uh, as soon as I got access to them, I was reading them. So I I think in third grade I had already books about Galileo and Darwin. In Galileo fourth grade, I was uh, yeah, I started uh, really paying attention in fourth grade, and uh, I wanted to know everything there was. Oh, that's great. And your teachers obviously encouraged you rather than discouraged you, which is, I assume, you had good teachers? Yeah, um, they pretty much let me do what I wanted. Which uh, is they didn't for a good help student. or hurt much. Yeah, they just <laughs> well, let, you know, for that, a good let me be alone. It was good enough. Yeah, well, no, I mean, so. you know, for some kids who are good students, I think that's what you want to do is you don't want to get in the way. But, but uh, you yeah. know, and... Uh, and that's nice that they let you do what you wanted and they could tell you were kind of you're clearly self-directed you did a lot of science fair projects i guess because you talked about the one you had but you also did a science fair project with a robot right with vacuum tubes and things yeah it didn't work at all <laughs> but it was an attempt well that's, that's an important. example of my history it's an example of my history i try to do things that are too hard and they well, don't you know, work but i learned something that, you know, uh, on a totally different level, when I was chair of a physics department, I ran a program in physics entrepreneurship, which we created, which a, our business school dean said was an oxymoron. All he didn't understand, as you do, that physics, is, as, well, both theorists and experimentalists, but particularly experimentalists, are really entrepreneurs and, and, and serial entrepreneurs in a way. And but, but when we started the program, we asked former business people, physicists who'd become business people, what we didn't teach them. And they said it was, we didn't teach them how to fail effectively. And I think that's what's really important. And, and, and if you're not pushing the edge of the envelope and, and learning how to fail effectively and, and get something out of what didn't work, then you have problems. I assume you say that's been your history. Yeah, um, I have a lot of failed projects that <laughs> I learned something from. And some of them are still in the back of my mind. Uh, even as a kid, I read about uh, telescopes and uh, turbulent atmosphere of the Earth. And gee, wouldn't it be great if you could do something about that? So um, I'm still interested. I'm still working on that. Well, we're going to talk about that. I, I, I was learning about some one you were telling me about one of your new projects in an email, and I was looking it up, and it is quite interesting. We'll get to it, but you've done some other interesting projects on the way. So I want to, I want to yes. talk about those. Um, but you did like electronics early, which is interesting to me. I think it's, it seems to me that people who really liked electronics early become experimentalists. And, uh, you know, I know a lot, a lot of my colleagues, uh, friends, uh, 
Joe Taylor, for example, another Nobel Prize winner, who's a wonderful old friend of mine at Princeton. You know, he was he he did uh, built CB radios and all these things and 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 antennas and and um, you know I played with electronics, but but uh, but it was for some reason the books that that got me interested. I, I was clearly a theorist early on. Yeah, yeah. But you 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 did a lot of projects with uh, experimentally, but but also you got to do one of these enrichment programs, which I was really impressed with in in in. Um, uh, 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 summer schools and 10th grade and Assumption College uh, about Foundation of Mathematics and uh, Cornell University for a summer physics program. And how, how did those opportunities get uh, arise for you? I have no idea. My yeah. parents must have found them. They must have talked to the people in the school uh, to say, well, we got a kid who wants to do stuff. What can he do? Oh, so wow. Great uh, I don't remember any of how it was discovered, but uh, I must have applied and they must have said yes. Uh, so somebody said, do this and you might be able to go. So, well, but you, you know, you, you had a great, you obviously, besides uh, your experimental interests and maybe abilities, uh, uh, you can tell me about whether you think you're a good experimentalist in a moment, but you had great ma yeah. mathematics abilities. Um, you did really well. And there was a math contest in, in, um, in, 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 when you were in grade seven, uh, well, let's see. Was it grade seven? I don't know when it was. Actually, a nationwide math contest. Yeah. Be placed seventh in New Jersey. When was that? How was that in university? Uh, oh, that would have been probably when I was a senior in high school. Probably senior in high school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I was pretty good at, at that level of mathematics, um, and um, I didn't actually pursue it as a profession um, because of partly because of one of those summer enrichment programs. I went off to school with. Uh, kids from Bronx High School of Science uh -huh. at this Assumption College. And I could see that they were years ahead of me. And um, these were the kinds of kids who could uh, play chess with you with their eyes blindfolded, but then they'd still beat you. So, okay, well, I'm not in that league, at least not today. And so why don't I try something easier like physics? And they weren't already good at physics. And I, I love physics. So it turned out to be able to make a way and do something that hadn't been done, which was to me, exciting. Yeah, no, well, obviously it, you've done a lot that hasn't been done before, but that's, that's you all, but you did, ne, you were nevertheless good enough. I think in college, was it the Putnam mathematics competition that I think you scored 30th yeah. in, the, in the nation in, yeah. am I right? Yeah, it was actually 29th when I looked up the, the printed newspaper bit, but uh, um, that was an astonishing thing. I didn't expect to do well because it wasn't my specialty. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to do physics, but okay, well, there's a chance. So I came out of that thinking, well, gee, I'd like to be like Richard Feynman. Yeah. He's the wizard. He knows everything. And even when I was a college student, his red books were the, the uh, thing to try to understand and learn yeah. physics from. Yeah. So, okay. And I got to graduate school. Oh, I want to still want to be like Richard Feynman, understand uh, quantum mechanics and gravity. Uh, after a little while, I realized that's actually pretty hard, uh, <laughs> and um, you've had more go more of a run at that than I have at all. Um, but um, anyway, I, I also developed in graduate school a sort of wish to be uh, closer to uh, hardware, yeah, and to talk to other people. I just was tired of being uh, staying up late at night in the library, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. puzzling yeah. over stuff. So it's nice to um, have a real thing. You know, I've come yeah. to appreciate it more late in life. You're right, as a theorist, and obviously Feynman was a big influence. I wrote a book on him, and but we also all realize we can't be Feynman. But it's nice to be, you know, nice. And he did, by the way. I think he 
won the Putnam math competition, by the way. Maybe that's the reason you wanted I to do it. I wouldn't be surprised. He was yeah, that he, sort of guy. Yeah, he won it. As a, and, and, and people don't think he was a good mathematician, but he was an astounding mathematician. He'd like to pretend it all came by accident, but but he was very good. But but late in life, you know, I kind of knew I didn't want to be an experimentalist. I actually did a degree in math and physics to get out of doing one of the experimental requirements in a physics course. Um, and um, and But then, you know, as typical, later in life, I, I kind of, I, I, I ha look with experimentalists with great envy because you actually, at the end of what you've done, you actually have something. And, you know, I've produced theories and there, but it's really nice to have something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, 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 uh, you did in graduate school. You, well, oh well, actually, I want to. There's something. There's a number of things that impressed me that I read that I didn't know about you. Um, first, that you know, so you went to Swarthmore, which is which I know is a nice sort of. And in fact, actually, there's there's some CMB people at Swarthmore that I that I knew from, uh, but they weren't. Were they doing CMB when you were there? Causing microwave background or no? Uh, it uh, was just discovered then. Yeah, was an undergraduate when it was discovered. Yeah. So uh, no, it was uh, too too soon for the college uh, faculty to get into that. I don't know what they're up to now with it. But but you know, I read that 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 on your senior thesis committee was David Wilkinson, uh, which must yes, have been an experience. You know, and and uh, that's that. Well, you know, David was one of the many people I met in my life who inspire is inspiring, a wonderful human being as well as a great physicist. In, in, I often say, <laughs> I used to say that one of the many proofs against God was that he he didn't win the Nobel Prize, and, and uh, uh, because he you know he was involved in the in the early experiments with with Peebles and and Dickey that really discovered the cosmic microwave. Essentially, they knew what they were looking for, and the people who discovered yeah. it had no idea what they were looking for, and 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 Dickey, Peebles, and Wilkinson were profoundly great scientists who 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 could have won that Nobel Prize. And if, if I think if Bob Dickey wasn't such a gentleman, they might have. Um, but but then he went on, you know, and in and, and other work and, and inspired. And of course, one of the great causing microwave back on probes is named after David Wilkinson. Did you have any, what was your experience with him as an undergraduate when he was on your thesis, senior thesis? Well, uh, it was very momentary because uh, he just asked me a few questions and I, I guess I did well. Um, <laughs> so I thought that's interesting. Uh, he was a really young faculty member at that point. Uh, uh -huh. he, he was hardly any older than I was, so but he had finished his graduate school already, and I was just about to go be in it. So, but I did get to work with him later, as he was a member of the Kobe Science team, and uh, he was the first cosm cosmic background radiation guy we called up uh, after uh, after we had the idea of writing a proposal. We'll call up David Wilkinson. So we he asked we asked him if he would join our team, and he said yes, of course. So we wrote a proposal back in 1974 for what turned out to be the Kobe satellite. Wow, and he was part of the original team. Wow, wow, 70, and that gives an idea we'll to talk work with too. Yeah, I bet he must have been a pleasure to work with. Yeah. And an excellent scientist, of course, but, uh, uh, and, but that also will get something into that. I mean, that's another reason why I never wanted to be experimentalist is that you start an experiment in 1974 and in 1990 or so, you, you, 19, you know, you probably begin to, you know, have an experiment. And so that, that long lead time is, requires a kind of dedication. As a theorist, I, I mean, there's some theorists who do the same thing their whole lives, but as theorists, I kind of hit and run. I have an idea and I work with it and it's lovely to move to another field, but, but to work on something that you don't know if it's even going to be built when you make the proposal and all of the obstacles 
to building it is amazing. But that obviously wasn't discouraging to you. Yeah, well, I just didn't worry about it. I thought, this is clearly the most important thing I've got to work on. So this is my, my best idea. Uh, look how important it could be if it works. Okay, so I have well, patience and uh, persistence, and I'll stick with it. And so um, we were lucky that, of course, it did get flown and it did work. Yeah. Um, and then we've been more lucky that the universe gave us something to see. Yeah, we'll talk um, about that. Yeah, I want to yeah, talk yeah, about, you know, I remember it was a close call. It was a close call. Absolutely. I was convinced, like many of my colleagues, that Kobe would be a failure um, in the sense that it wouldn't be able to distinguish a signal from noise based on what had already been there. And it was just amazing that, well, we'll talk about this, how you were just a little bit below the the the, the other experiments that have looked and not been able to just do it. And it is amazing that the signal was there and striking. But that that's jumping ahead. And, and, and I want to talk about the cosmic wave background in a little more orderly fashion for people who don't know much about it. But but I still am not finished with you yet and I, you're with okay. your life. And, and Wilkinson was on your committee, but then you thought about going to Princeton for graduate school. Was it because of Wilkinson or? or, or... No, I just, I knew he was there, but uh, just, it was a really good school. Sure. Uh, and and it was I... close by and I had friends up there. So, well, I'll go there. And then, so... and then you ended up getting, getting, going, deciding because of a friend to Berkeley looked like a nicer place to be. And and I was really impressed. You told you wrote to Princeton. I guess you were going. You'd already been accepted there, I suppose. That you weren't going to go yeah. because they didn't had no women students, which I think, which um, is which that's is a... right. that's right. And uh, I, I was a sort of aware that that was an odd thing that they didn't have women students. I was also self interested. You know, I don't have a girlfriend. My uh, friends at Princeton said, "Don't come here if you're not married. <laughs> it is not a good place for a, a single guy." Yeah. Okay, I can understand that. They're very vocal about this. Yeah. So, okay, just for personal reasons. And then, um, but it was, I think, just the next year or two that they said, okay, we're opening up for women. So I don't think I had anything to do with it. I think it was the time, so it was time was for them tough. to change. But well, when, would, when did you start um, graduate school? What year? I started grad school in 68. Yeah, I think it was it was 70 when the Ivy League, I think Princeton was one of the last of the Ivy Leagues, but they all admitted women. It still amazed me when I first learned that, you know, I, I went to graduate school in 77 and moved to the United States then to do it. And I had no idea it was only seven years later than, you know, that they hadn't had women. And it was just still a shock to me to, to, to realize it was that late and, uh, and how yeah, things well, have Princeton changed. Had this sort of, it was sort of wonderfully archaic when I went to visit. Uh, you know, they have these uh, colleges and uh, people have dinner. They put it on these long black robes like you're in, in Oxford. Yeah. Uh, and you, you don't have to wear anything under them, but you can go there and just have dinner with your friends. And it's all very buddy-buddy and masculine. Yeah, yeah, place. yeah. Well, a lot uh, of these schools are like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, like to be like Britain, which was very masculine. Um, and, and, you know, I've attended a high table now in, in a number of British universities, but yeah, I mean, even when I taught at Yale, there's a lot of this Anglophilia. They like to like mimic, yeah. mimic this British. Well, uh, well, it was sort of fun, but I thought it just doesn't feel like me. Well, that's good. In fact, so, yeah, I, I can, yeah, I absolutely can understand that. And, uh, um, uh, yeah, probably a difference for me from, from Harvard and MIT, where MIT, I had my PhD and then I went to Harvard and it was a very different field. MIT was sort of no nonsense kind of the kind of place I think you, you know you and I you know appreciate just get to work and 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 the robes don't matter and neither do the do the academic frills but but you went to you went to Berkeley and that of course it's 68 that was a key time and you and 
And and you said your 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 that the Vietnam War had an impact. And I'd like to ask you, I didn't realize that. Um, and um, were you active in any of the anti-war movement when you were there? No, I wasn't active. Um, but what was uh, sort of more upfront was uh, there's, uh, there was a lot of student protests, yeah, which tore up the city. Um, and uh, I was going, trying to go to physics class and, uh, and uh, Ronald Reagan was governor. He sent uh, a tank an armored tank to park at the foot of the university boulevard and uh, send helicopters to tear gas the campus, um, including the hospital. So I thought this is not good times to be protesting either. Um, <laughs> so, but as but far as I could tell, he was he was uh, very good at using this event as to help him propel himself into national leadership. You know, we're so tough on those stupid students. Yeah, it works. It worked for him, obviously. And but it did it did indicate me I, I, I was you said you considered studying law to in order to defend the country from the government of the day, which I thought was a very interesting attitude. Um, and you also said, of course, you've been in government in a way work as a government employee. And so your views have changed a little yeah. bit. But yeah. um, well, right. Um, I, I thought, well, this is clearly a very important question. How do we protect ourselves from ourselves? Yeah. Uh, so, um, but I went and got the catalog from the law school. Oh, I don't understand a word that it says. <laughs> this is not a good opportunity for me. I am not well prepared to be a lawyer. Um, it's just not me either. So uh, somebody else better do this, but that's not going to be me. Okay. Well, but did you um, have your, uh, you don't have to answer this question, but I was impressed that, you know, on these social issues, you, 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 thought about them and spoke about them and at least in, in uh and and have your would you consider yourself still a classical liberal in that sense or or uh um you know uh concerned about um how, about protecting the people from government or perhaps protecting uh people elsewhere like when we have invaded various countries and yeah well um i've got lots of political concerns uh, Clearly, the vision that our country started with, uh, with the Declaration of Independence and a Constitution, is one that we were not living up to at the time and still are having trouble with. Um, but there are wonderfully inspiring words there. And every 4th of July, I read the Declaration of Independence. And I say, I'm so proud to be working in this world where this is what we really try to do, uh, even if we can't do it yet. So uh, it's aspirational. It uh, gives us direction to follow. And uh, well, I'm, I like that. I'm yeah, proud of what good. we are trying to do. Um, and uh, that declaration said uh, a lot of things that uh, people consider to be liberal, but actually I think it's conservative to keep what we have and protect ourselves. You know, this country was started to protect us from the government. Yeah, I know, it certainly George. has. And, and so um, protecting ourselves from the government is important, but it, it's, um, anyway, it's an interesting subject. I'm not a deep thinker on, no. on uh, government or philosophy, but um, I'm con simultaneously uh, grateful for the wonderful support that our country has been able to give to science and uh, also aware that one of the reasons that they do that is because we're at war with the rest of the world half of the time. And so um, it's tricky. It's tricky. I mean, certainly the motivation for supporting science, especially after the Second World War, was not necessarily the science, but the science being able to contribute to the defense of the nation in a, in a certain way and, and, um, yeah. and or the prestige or whatever. Um, 
No, I look. I don't want to. I want. I don't want to bring uh, uh, politics, especially. And I'm also particularly aware that now, as a Nobel laureate, and obviously have any friends, including you, who are Nobel laureates, that you you have to be more careful what you say than you could before, because you get asked to. Um, I know because I've been part of getting groups of people together to write letters on various things at various times for support of science and other things. That you get asked to get for a lot of things, and you have to be a little more careful now. Um, yeah, uh, what you say and when you say it. Right, uh, but some things are kind of obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And but you know, it occurred to me when you talked about the Declaration of Independence and 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 the aspirations of the country that we haven't lived up to. It's more part and parcel of what you're talking about with experiments. You know, failing an experiment, just you learn something and then you try and improve, right? And so maybe that's yes. each time we fail, yes. we should try and accept that we fa at least failed in, in a way and try and improve what we're doing and, and what learn yeah, what we've yeah. gotten from that's, it. Yeah, we have, you know, the future is long. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. We hope. It's we we, we hope well, it is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the time given the events of the day, sometimes one wonders. But but anyway, let's let's get to the more of the science. You you look when you got to graduate school at Berkeley, which was in the nineteen late sixties, nineteen seventies. Berkeley was was a well, actually right from the early sixties through on to the early seventies. Berkeley was a key center of of physics in the country and and had been one of the perhaps the major uh, ex experimental, but also to some extent theoretical uh, center. And 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 you know I've talked to people like my, like my friends uh, David Gross who was there earlier as a theorist, and then Barry Barish who was a Experimentalist there in the as a particle physicist in the sixties. In the seventies, you went, you went, um, you were working with uh, with uh, Paul Richards, who I know very well, and also Charlie Towns, uh, another mm -hmm. great uh, scientist. What was and so Mike Mike Werner? I should mention Mike, Mike Werner, also. Yeah, in fact, um, Mike. I understand that Mike was was almost a mentor of yours, or no? Or in yes, he and I uh, worked together. Uh, under the supervision of Towns and Richards to produce an experiment to measure the cosmic background radiation from a mountaintop in California. Now, how did you get and, there? Uh, how, we, how, how, before we get to the experiment, I mean, why did you, you were interested initially was particle physics probably because of Feynman, I suspect. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, and why I mean, did everything you- Everything was mysterious and new. Yeah, it was. And, in fact, that was a time of great uncertainty and it, and, and it was a really, new and new particles were being discovered every year and it was a morass and clearly open for understanding it's amazing how within five years the whole thing had been sort of understood in a way but but what what caused you to move out of that field well number one i was tired of studying in the library and number two um i started asking around to the faculty well what have you got to work on uh. and so um talked to just a couple of people and uh and uh, mike warner and and Charlie Towns and uh, Paul Richards were all working together on this measurement of the cosmic background radiation. Oh, that's pretty cool. Sounds like fun. I could understand that. Uh, it's a lot simpler than quantum mechanics. So um, I was very attracted and I liked them personally. I think they were great people to work with. And I still think so. Um, it was a great environment to learn experimental physics. Yeah, no, so, I know. Okay, I didn't know Charles. Do that. Yeah, I didn't know Towns very well. Paul Richards, I know for a long time, a lovely, lovely. But uh, would you, well, but let's step back now and now begin to talk about the science. Um, 1970 was only five years or so after the cosmic microwave back and had been discovered. It was really in its infancy. So let's talk about, um, well, what were you trying to do then? And um, 
and 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 what the importance of the cosmic microwave background is. So let so let's talk about both. Uh, okay. Well, back in 1970, it was a pretty good guess that this microwave radiation that had been measured was actually cosmic, because it seemed to have no direction. It came equally from all directions. Um, that says cosmic. Mm -hmm. uh, it more or less in the right domain of temperature to be the predicted cosmic background radiation that had from Alfred and Herman and uh, and their work back in the 40s. So probably it. But what if it's not? So um, there had been some early measurements uh, that were incorrect uh, that mm -hmm. said, well, it's not that. So this sounds like a graduate student project, doesn't it? But we can at least do that one only better. And so that was a strategy, find something pretty easy and pretty quick to do. Uh, and that was the one that um, Mike Werner and I did on the mountaintop in, uh, in, in California. Uh, and it worked. Um, and it said there's nothing fishy going on that we can see, but it wasn't very easy to do because atmospheric interference is very strong. Um, so what was the specific we experiment? Millimeter waves. You look at mil uh, what, what was it specifically looking for, and what was what was its result? It was looking to see is the temperature right at shorter wavelengths than people had measured before, and so. Um, have to look uh, in between the interfering uh, uh, frequencies from the Earth's atmosphere. The water and oxygen are emitting uh, light at those wavelengths also. So there's a few places in between their interference where you could see, well, cosmic background, is it really the right temperature? So that was our job. And yes, it's about right, but it's not a very precise measurement. So uh, while let we me, were doing that- let, 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 let's, let me step back. I'm just going to think of the audience here. So the, let's let's explain yeah something which actually becomes very important in your career later on, how, how you measure yeah. temperature. Why would measuring a certain frequency tell you about a temperature? So uh, okay. hot objects, well, why don't you explain it? Yeah, so um, the prediction of the expanding universe story is that uh, the universe has just one temperature in the early times. It's, everything's uh, like a giant pressure cooker, there's only one temperature. And then uh, the expanding universe preserves that unity, and there's still only one temperature for that heat radiation, even though it's cooled off a lot. That's the prediction. So now, how are you going to test it? Um, you have to have a thermometer, basically, and, and tune it up to all the different wavelengths that it could possibly pick up. So if you get the same temperature at every different wavelength, you've confirmed the Big Bang picture. So that was our job uh, to basically measure the temperature at as many wavelengths as possible. And and so, and 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 measuring the temperature again, just to step back for people, measuring the temperature at different wavelengths is it, the reason you can do that. Is that an object of a certain temperature emits frequencies, emits many different wavelengths, but each wavelength with a different power, and you can look at and you can look at the intensity. So if you have a temperature x, you can predict how much energy is in each or power is in each different frequency band. And, and it has a well-defined spectrum called for an ideal object called a black body. So what you're doing is you're measuring the power in a specific frequency and that tells you, tells you the temperature, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what we wanted to do. It's pretty hard on the ground because of the air. Mm -hmm. And of course the atmosphere is a lot warmer than the thing you're trying to measure. And so is the apparatus. Uh, our apparatus is just sitting there on the mountaintop. It's room temperature, chilly room, but room temperature. Yeah. And um, the cosmos is a hundred times colder than that in the absolute scale. So that's near impossible. 
So, well, okay, we tried and we got about the right answer, but it was near, near impossible. How did you get, how did you get, how were you able to d disentangle it from all the, all the, the local temperature backgrounds and such? Well, um, number one, you have a, a, a body of, that you can build yourself and you know exactly what temperature it is. And then you change its temperature in front of the apparatus to see, uh, well, did you measure the right thing? And then you have to extrapolate uh, to uh, what if there's only looking at the universe? So that's the basic part. And then you have to fiddle and fool around a lot to get rid of the interference of the Earth's atmosphere and the apparatus itself. So it's a lot of argument and not a very direct measurement, but you can do it. That's what they had to do the first time when the radiation the, was discovered. Yeah, in fact, it, the first time they discovered it, again, they it was because of what we understood later, we called it a three-degree background, but they measured, I think, a single frequency, right? Uh, they yeah, just measured, just they got noise at a single frequency. And from that, you really can't say it's at a temperature if you've only measured a single frequency. But you can say if yeah. it were a temperature, this would be the temperature it would be. Yeah. But they never, yeah, but then, neither, but they couldn't, they had no spectrum. It was just a single data point, right? Right. So that was the Bell Labs result. And uh, it wasn't very long till the Princeton group got uh, a measurement at a different frequency and they got the same temperature. So that's that was a confirmation that it was really cosmic. Yeah. Uh, but then after that, the big job for all experimenters was measure at more frequencies and measure better. And of course, whenever you start, you get the wrong answer the first time, the second time, the third time. And you have to keep at it until it starts to make sense. So you measured it. You got a date. You got some data, which was not very good. That got you a PhD, I assume, right? Yeah. And then, um, and then, but that was that was actually only part of the PhD. There was also another apparatus that Paul Richards had designed for us students while he was on sabbatical in Britain, yeah. and he came back and he's got this sketch and an idea and a drawing, and so why don't we build this, guys? And so it was a balloon payload that would go up uh, 25 miles of the upper atmosphere uh, to get above that interference we were complaining about just now. And uh, then you could do a much better measurement. So that was the plan. And so I worked on that for a couple of years with them. And uh, we finally went down to Texas to launch it from the balloon base in Palestine, Texas. And up it went and you know, it didn't work. <laughs> So why it just didn't function properly. There were three different reasons. Uh, two of them related to the equipment being really cold when it's way up there in the upper atmosphere. And one of them was something we never would have ever figured out in the lab, which was the water got into the motor um, and froze and rusted. And oh. so we got the motor back and it wouldn't turn anyway. Wow. So that happened between the moment of launch and the recovery. So anyway, so Paul Richards said, okay, you can write a thesis about this thing that did work on the ground and the thing that didn't work in, in the air and, uh, and we'll let you out. And so I got a job uh, to work for NASA after that. Well, let, let's, that, this is fascinating. It's great to, to, the point is that experiments don't work, still teach you something and you can get a PhD if you know, because you learn, you learn from it and you learn the techniques. Is, it, is that the experiment to, to also... It worked, but it wouldn't have. Was that the one that you're, you did some soldering on to that didn't that we've? Oh yeah, uh, I soldered the antenna on the bottom of the apparatus and it fell off <laughs> on the at the launch site. So somebody who knew it. how to do this better came and fixed it. Fortunately, otherwise we would have been even more mystified about why it didn't work. 
Yeah, well, there we go. Um, I mean, I want to point out to people that, yeah, you know, it, 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 for kids who want to do stuff, you don't have to be the best solderer. You don't have to be the best mathematician. No. You, know, you don't have to be the best of a lot of things. No, a lot of kids are intimidated from doing science because they think they're, they're you know, they, there are better people at X, Y, or Z. And, and the point is it takes all all kinds and, and good ideas and, and, and we will take work yeah, it takes And it takes a team usually. Yeah. Um, we're never there alone. Yeah, that's what I've really learned from life that uh, you're never alone. Yeah. Um, if your idea is a good one, then you've probably got people working with you. Uh, and uh, so they'll catch you, we hope, if you make a mistake. Yeah, and, well, no, uh, and eventually we'll get it figured out. So yeah, no, it I, takes it, patience and, and, uh, and, uh, and some kind of faith that it's all worth working on, even though things will go wrong over and over. Yeah, kind of so, determination, a kind of faith. You're absolutely right. And, 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 and that's an important thing, your statement about it being a team, because it's even true... For theorists, I mean, people, everyone has this vision of Einstein, a sort of lone guy in a room at night or something. But he wasn't. And, and he wasn't. He wasn't and he, at all. He wasn't in any way. And, and you know, as a theorist, I mean, it, it's te it's teamwork with your students and other people arguing at the blackboards, learning from other people. Science is a collaborative activity and has always been, well, maybe Newton. Newton was an exception, but that was way back when. And, uh, uh, but in the modern times, it, it's essential it's a social activity. And one of the wonderful things about it as a social activity is it brings pe people together of vastly different experiences, cultures, religions, languages, and they can all work together fruitfully. It's a perfect example for the rest of the world of how to get along, you know. Yes, I, I think so too. And in fact, I would say most of my ideas that have turned out to be useful were come from conversation with other people. Ab absolutely. Mm -hmm. And 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 learning learning when you're wrong, I think, is really important and if you don't that's part of i just finished doing a radio program about echo chambers in universities now and and the problem is that if you don't allow if you don't hear from people who disagree with you sometimes you don't discover you're wrong and that's a real yeah. that's a real problem it's, yeah and it actually as a general principle that's something that's really important for nasa um you know we don't want to take a chance on being wrong about our space flight hardware. Yeah. Um, I like to tell people, you know, John Mather's opinion has no effect whatever on the hardware. <laughs> Don't ask me if it's going to work. Uh, we have to go through the process to make sure that it works. And to prove we yourself wrong. We test. Yeah, testing and yourself is... We're wrong. Yeah. Let's, we have to test. We have to get other people to argue with us because um, how do you know you're even testing the right thing? You could have a blind spot and just not be aware. So... There are lots of stories to tell, but at any rate, the uh, testing and arguing are crucial to success. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I want to go into that in NASA in a second. I, the the balloon experience appeals to me because I, I've I've talked to a lot of ballooners, and it's a unique club of learning how to. <laughs> I mean, but the balloon, unlike a laboratory experiment, so much can go wrong, and so almost so much almost always does. Um, it's a great training ground to learn about. Um, of how things can go wrong, I think. And every, every experimentalist yeah. I know who's run balloons has told me horror stories, fondly in retrospect, but but horror stories. And But you moved to NASA, yeah. and that was a bit of, was that a, that, was that a very different environment? After all, NASA, you moved to NASA when, in what year? Uh, in January of 74. So, I okay. my doctorate and uh, immediately got on the plane to New York. Wow. Uh, NASA has a small laboratory in New York. Uh, and in those days, we did astronomy there. Pat Thaddeus was a brilliant uh, radio astronomer. And yeah. 
also an expert on measuring the cosmic microwave background radiation. As it turned out, this was important. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, he said, well, would you like to be a postdoc and become a radio astronomer? And so when uh, he called up and, and offered me this job, and I didn't really know him, but I'd met him just once. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. <clears throat> so uh, it sounded like fun. I really loved who he was and uh, thought he'd be a great person to learn from. So I said, okay, I'll go to New York. I'll become a NASA astronomer. <clears throat> so now, um, now, now the New York he, environment, NASA at New York was more of, well, was that a, it, it was at the university, was at Columbia, no, was it, was it located? Yeah, they have their own building, a uh, separate building, uh, but it's next to Columbia University. And, so was uh, it a more of a university NASA, environment? Uh, was it more of a university well, environment than a, a government in, environment? Yeah, uh, well, it's, uh, <clears throat> how can you tell the difference? Well, we weren't mostly teaching, so oh. more of a government lab, um, but we were doing research. So Pat Thaddeus was studying molecules in space. And he'd even managed to find a way to build a small radio telescope, four feet in diameter, mm -hmm. about that big, on the top of a physics building at the university and started to mapping uh, where is the carbon monoxide molecule in space throughout our galaxy. So, oh, that was the coolest thing. You can do a radio astronomy from New York City from the top of the building. Yeah, it's okay, amazing. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah it's, so, it still amazes me. I don't know how you guys do I, I That's the kind of thing as a theorist. I, Wow, I, it still amazes me that you can do that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, well, and you work impressive. at it and work at it. You keep looking for opportunities. And so once in a while they turn up, you know, yeah. you try 99 of them and, and one of them works. And so, yeah, yeah, no, oh, well, yeah, we I yeah. could build a telescope there. Well, you know, so Anyways. you were, you were working with Thaddeus at, at Columbia, but that was 74. And you said that, that Am I, was I, you said that the nascent, the, the birth of, of Colby was at that time as well. So what, talk to me yeah. about, about that, about how, how Colby came about, called the Cosmic Background Explorer Satellite, just for the listeners, which mm -hmm. was the first one to ultimately measure several facets of the cosmic microwave background by a satellite in space, and for which you and, and George Schmoot uh, shared the Nobel Prize. Yeah, so it was uh, 1974. Uh, I arrived at the end of January. At New York, and uh, you know, summertime, sometime uh, NASA put out an announcement of opportunity, a call for proposals, um, and basically they said, uh, "Send us ideas for new science projects." You know, it's just been five years since we landed on the moon. What are we going to do now? And uh, from what I hear, they were expecting a handful of scientists to send in proposals. But you know, I told my boss, that was Pat Thaddeus, uh, you know, my thesis project didn't work. Well, you know, it's obvious that we should be doing this experiment in outer space because uh -huh. it overcomes all of the problems we ever had trying to yeah. do it with balloons and the like. So here's my idea. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll call up our friends. We'll write a proposal. So we called up Ray Weiss at MIT. We called up Dave Wilkinson uh, at Princeton. We called up Mike Hauser at NASA Goddard in Greenbelt. Uh -huh. And uh, we, we added a few more people from their teams and we wrote a proposal. And we uh, met, had our first meeting face to face in something like September that year. And uh, proposals went in a few months after that. And uh, so it was our concept. Uh, and it went in and came back. Um, well, we sent it into NASA. I thought, well, that'll never work. I'm just a kid. We're all, we're all young. This is, we're all claiming to be able to do this thing that we've never done. Um, but um, somehow NASA knew that this was so important 
uh, had such an immense possible payoff that they said after about a year, well, why don't we give you some money? We'll study it some more. Um, and that's while I was still in New York. So we studied it some more. And um, then... Um, so, so hold on, let me, let me, because I, my, I, I had some interference there in my ear for a little while. So I wanted to be clear. So you didn't think it would work, but NASA thought it was good enough to continue to, uh, did, did they fund, they funded a study proposal at the beginning? Is that? They funded this small study. The uh, idea that interested them at the time was, could I put the spectrometer into the same cryostat that, that we were considering for the IRAS satellite, the infrared astronomical satellite, which was already being considered and uh, we were working pretty hard on it at that point so the upshot was no it's actually a bad idea to try that um, but um, it was a, a way to keep uh, momentum going and then um, uh, you moved down to did you say you yeah. moved down to greenbelt then i moved down to greenbelt in uh summer of 76. so you'd been so at, two years two after yeah so um so by then it was beginning to look like this is a good enough idea somebody really would select it so um i came here on hopes uh, that it would work mike hauser recruited me to come here uh. and um okay let's try that we were hoping that it would be chosen uh, to continue so um so it was that meant that nasa said this is a good enough idea we'll study it some more and here are some brilliant engineers who are just finishing up another observatory uh, and they'll help you. Uh, so they were building and completing the International Ultraviolet Explorer, okay. which was a little telescope uh, in orbit of the Earth that uh, went around once a day like the uh, communication satellites do now. Um, but you could sit in the control room downstairs in Building 21 and send commands to your telescope. So astronomers came from all over the world to observe things with the telescope. And so we knew this was a brilliant engineering team. They could make something very difficult happen. Mm -hmm. So so we worked with them for quite a while and uh, sent in a bigger revised proposal to NASA headquarters. And um, I think they chose in those days about 12 of the original big proposals mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to study further. By the way, there were about 150 proposals sent in to NASA headquarters in 1974, wow. which was, a, from what I hear, a big shock. Uh, they didn't expect to get nearly that many. And uh, there were actually three of them about cosmic background radiation. Oh. Uh, the other two, one was from Berkeley, uh, one was from Jet Propulsion Labs. So um, NASA did something unusual. They said, this is important enough uh, that we might need expertise from all of those teams to, uh, to do the right thing. So they uh, said, we're going to create a new science team with uh, members of all of those teams. I was going to ask, so got they, a new it's a logical team. thing to do, the logical thing to do yeah, is put so them together. Got, yeah, so we got uh, one person from uh, Berkeley, uh, two people from JPL, uh, David Wilkinson from Princeton, Ray Weiss from MIT, uh, me and Mike Hauser, and I think Pat Thaddeus at that point said, well, okay, you guys, I gave you a good start, go run. So. Uh, he didn't actually want to be a part of the big space mission, um, as far as I could tell. So then, uh, anyway, so we're off and running. And so uh, John Mather is now going to meetings every day with engineers to figure out how to do this. Had you become, so, so, you, 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 so there, was a, there was a group and there was group Berkeley and, and you said Caltech. At this point, you were a junior scientist or you, were you, were you pro, a, sort of a projects? What was your role in the, in the team at that time? 
Okay, well, I was called a study scientist, which meant I worked with the, uh, the leading engineers to figure out how to build something. And uh, I also was pushing the idea of the spectrometer that would measure this spectrum of the cosmic background radiation, compare it with the, the color or the temperature that it should have uh, if it were really cosmic. Yeah, in fact, so, let's, uh, I had the so, two jobs. Okay, so and and did you have a permanent position at that point, or was it? I mean, in the government is yeah, a little bit different. Yeah, well, as far as I was concerned, it was permanent. Uh, <laughs> so that um, no, I wasn't going anywhere. I guess it was a in the standard procedure is you're on uh, uh, provisional uh, employee for a while. Uh -huh. But but you but just you were in case you turned out to be a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, but. There were you, as you say, you worked on the spectrometer. The experiment not only had as and it's and so when there were 150 proposals, the the Kobe what would become Kobe wasn't funded fully, but it passed some cut. There's some number that they funded at some provisional level. Do you know how many there were or no? I think there were about 12 that were chosen. Wow, uh, for further study. We, so you, know, you were surprised. Most of them, I think, yeah, I, I was surprised, but not that surprised. Um, and I think eventually NASA flew most of them. Oh, um, all the 12. They, they were, it took a long time to work off that queue of, yeah. uh, of brilliant right. ideas. They were amazed at how many brilliant ideas they were. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, there were 150 at that. And it was a, well, like it's many things, you know, if you have the science progresses for many reasons, but one, when, when the new technologies become available to open up new windows, that's when new discoveries are made. And it was a time of new technologies where, where a lot of new windows were, and so smart young scientists would say, hey, here's a new technology, let's use it. And you were one of those, I think, that, that was thinking about that. Yeah, but, no, yeah, we do, yeah. So um, but there were th when but, we started, but, no, nobody had ever flown a, a helium cryostat in space, and we needed one. Okay. But we that, knew uh, that NASA was already going to build one. So, okay, this isn't stupid. Oh, you knew it because of the IRAS, because of the yeah. other, uh, the experiment. And yeah. did that, that flew, did that fly? Yeah, it flew. Yeah. Yeah, I it thought also it was did. a lot of trouble, but yeah, it um, had a lot of trouble. But it did work. Yeah. So yeah. right away when we started our study, we flew out to Ball Aerospace in Boulder, Colorado, to say, well, how does this thing work? Okay. Now, now there, but it's a it's it's a it's smaller than a particle accelerator experiment, but it's a big experiment that has a lot of components. And you and your work focused, as we'll talk about, on on one of the seminal measurements it made which was the spectrum but there were different components and how was it decided what instruments should go on this uh were important and what aspects of the cme should study so how did your group decide that and 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 who got involved and how okay well we had uh, the small science team that i mentioned um, and we had originally proposed four scientific instruments uh in our group from new york uh, so then we got together as a group uh, and we argued and thought, and we decided, well, one of them is actually too hard to do. Uh, we can't really figure out how to make that happen. So we'll just have to give it up. What one was and it? So we, that was a, another anisotropy measurement uh, at millimeter waves. Okay. Would have used uh, detectors inside the cryostat, um, wow. but otherwise similar to the DMR measurements that we did later, the microwave radiometers. So um, that's... Uh, that one was ejected right away. Um, later on, there was another crisis when uh, um, there wasn't enough money to keep on going at the full tilt that we wanted. 
uh, and uh, our good friends down the hall at the Hubble Space Telescope needed money even more than we did. Mm-hmm. And so oh, we better wait for a while. So at that point, somebody said, well, now we have a new technology. We could put one of the frequency channels of the microwave radiometers onto a balloon. And it probably wasn't the best wavelength to use anyway. So maybe that'll be a good substitute or a good enough substitute. So uh, it kept us going and also enabled us to save enough money. We could try a more advanced technology for the microwave receivers. You know, we were going to start, we started off with uh, room, te- room temperature receivers. And oh, okay. um, that was not, well, we were afraid that it wasn't quite good enough. Yeah. And so nobody knew, but uh, we said, well, okay, we have extra time. Uh, we've just saved some money. We have time to develop a slightly more advanced technology. We'll co- cool the receivers down to a lower temperature and they'll be more sensitive. So we did that. We found a way. Um, and we were glad in the end that we had, as we'll talk later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It, it, it was... Uh... A combination of good luck and good and good foresight, I think that that, that combined together. But the um, so the so um, the but just to clarify for people, then the three components of Kobe were with this experiment called FIRAS, which did you when did you become the head of that part of the experiment right away or or? Well, I think I was always really the leader of that, uh, but I wasn't given a title right okay. away. Mm-hmm. Um, we and we had two other instruments also, uh, yeah. the microwave receivers that were to make a map of the sky, and a uh, and and a near infrared telescope called the diffuse infrared background experiment uh, that was looking for the light of the first galaxies. And this wasn't uh, the same kind of experiment as the others. It wasn't looking at the cosmic microwave radiation. It was looking for something that had never been seen. Uh, and so uh, we all chewed on this for a while and finally decided who was going to lead each of these instruments. Um, and so Mike Hauser ended up as the lead for that one. The, the, it's called Derby, the Diffuse Infrared Background mm-hmm. Experiment. Uh, and uh, George Smoot ended up being the PI for the microwave radiometers. So, uh, but they were all, none of us were alone. We had a team. And we all looked over each other's shoulders to make sure, sure we're doing the right thing. They're a big team. And that's part of the problem that people point out with Nobel Prizes, is, is especially in science nowadays, is that there's teams and, and people get recognized for one reason or another. And 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 it I never thought of it. I don't know. I wasn't going to, I wouldn't, might not have asked it, but it's kind of interesting. I guess, um, you know, there were three experiments and Nobel Prize allows three people, but but two of the experiments uh, uh, on the, uh, because they directly related to cosmic microwave background, won the Nobel Prize. So poor Mike, um, in a way, um, missed out, I suppose, by looking for something which itself yeah. would have been a remarkable discovery, I suppose. Yes, it is a remarkable discovery. Yeah. Um, at the time that uh, we made our measurements, the uh, result was a surprise. Yeah. Um, it's also not been fully explained, uh, which means it's still an ongoing surprise. It's an ongoing puzzle. Um, but it was a sort of iffy and difficult measurement. Long, long argument to get to the answer. And so uh, it's a little less certain uh, even now of what yeah. it is and what it means. Uh, so, um, but there are also lots of, as you say, there's lots of questions about who do you, who should get a prize. Yeah, yeah. So uh, some stories to tell. Number one, uh, Ned Wright at UCLA was the person who made the first map that showed bumps on it yeah. as a, with a map of the cosmic microwave spots. 
So he did it all on his little laptop. Yeah. So that was pretty spectacular. Yeah. It took us a long time to argue with him and agree that, that yes, that's the right answer. And uh, also uh, Chuck Bennett, who was the deputy PI for that instrument, actually was the real shepherd for an awful lot of the hardware and software. Yeah. And uh, his concept really got implemented. So uh, both of those guys really earned an awful lot of yeah. credit in this. And it's too bad. Uh, we didn't get to tell the Nobel Committee that before they made their choices, but well, anyway, it's arbitrary. It's it only three. Comes out this way. Yeah, it comes yeah. out this way. But you know, it's a, and it was recognized. I mean, it was a, it changed everything, and it it, it did. And I know I was around. I was working on that field, and and um, actually, um, at, at, well, and, and I and I knew George well at the time, and and was uh, and actually had tried to get my university to hire him earlier on, and they didn't, but. Um, uh, was thinking about Kobe and when and when, but it changed. There's no doubt that the, that it changed everything, because it made it clear that you could you could see two aspects of the CMB. Um, one which was maybe more surprising than the other. But let me let's let's before we talk about the one that was more surprising, which was the anisotropies. Um, Firas measured this black body spectrum. Your experiment. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most beautiful images. I mean, I'm sure it got in newspapers everywhere because it, as I say, theoretically, from 1905 on, quantum mechanics had predicted this spectrum called a black body, which is a spectrum of radiation emitted by a perfectly black body, of which you generally don't get anything I mean, not on, here on Earth. It, and you, but you could predict the spectrum of radiation, the amount of energy in each frequency band, Black body radiation, it was the kind of thing you learn of in school. And as an undergraduate, you do these tests in, the, in undergraduate experiments and you look for this kind of stuff. But your picture was a perfect black body. And I mean perfect. The error bars could not be seen. And, and let me ask you this. So it, as I, at the time, it was, I believe, and I, I used to write about this, so I hope I wasn't saying the wrong thing. It was the best measured black body that had ever been measured. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Still okay. is. I wonder. I want to ask: um, Is it still? Have we ever yeah. been able to produce a black body on Earth that competes to the universe? And the answer is no. Uh, well, I guess you can, uh, but um, it's hard to prove when you've done yeah. it. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's amazing. By the way, we should we should we should explain one subtle point here, which isn't so subtle. We didn't actually measure whether Planck's curve is correct. We said, here is our best black body that we can build. It's a big piece of black plastic. Yeah. And it's as close to black as you can possibly make. And we said, okay, here's the sky. It's coming into the apparatus. Now we put the big piece of black plastic in instead of the sky and they match. Okay. So that's how you avoid having to measure whether Planck's curve is correct. You say, well, the sky is a black body maybe. Here's a piece of black plastic they match exactly. So I don't have to know if Planck's formula is correct to get this comparison. Comparison. Okay, exactly. Okay, so, interesting. And, and your black well, plastic had to be at the, the precise. And the black plastic had to be. That's how we could get it so precise. Uh, well, but we the had black... to match the temperature. Exactly. I was going to yeah. say you have to match the temperature. So that's how you get the precision of temperature. You can change. You could you could adjust the temperature of the black plastic, presumably, right? Yeah. Yeah. It had uh, controls on it. And so and how how well could you adjust it down to the matches? To what we had, accuracy? Uh, about, uh, we could control it with uh, about one millikelvin steps, I think. 
which is a small fraction. Yeah. And uh, the harder problem was to make sure the thermometer that we had on the piece of black plastic was itself correct. Because how do you prove that? How did you prove that? Well, um, very ingenious guy uh, named Dale Fixon found uh -huh. numerous ways to, we had several thermometers. Uh, so you can use uh, Planck's formula to say, uh, um, this is how they should behave. You should change the temperature up and down. And then he said, I can see uh, molecules in space with this spectrometer. So I can calibrate the spectrum exactly. I know the wavelength. So we know Planck's constant and, uh, and uh, Boltzmann constant. So now I can actually determine from the shape of the spectrum what the temperature actually is. So he could get that whole argument to work and the end, end is uh, the precision is better than 1,000th of a degree Kelvin, better than one millikelvin. Wow. So it's because of him and his way of thinking about uh, calibration that we were able to get that. And the error bars in the end are less than one milli-degree temperature and less than 50 parts per million on the spectrum agreeing wow. with the black body. So it's yeah, stunning. It's no. unbelievably stunning. Yes. It was just, it was no, you know, whenever you see something like that, you don't expect the first, you know, the first measurement to be so, so clear and beautiful. Yeah. And it was really a yeah. shock to see it so, so beautiful. Before that, I guess people don't realize, I mean, as a theorist, I'd seen, I'd seen, you know, evidence of the black body spectrum and the temperature, but, but no one had measured, because you can't get most of these wavelengths on earth, you know, no one had seen the spectrum to tell you, hey, it's really a temperature. And then suddenly, not only is it really a temperature, hey, it's the best measured, you know, it's the best measured temperature in a way of almost anything that's ever been measured. It's really amazing. Yeah. Now, I should tell you one uh, next step that people are thinking about. We at Goddard uh, uh, have been thinking about uh, a way to measure it a thousand times better. A thousand times better. A thousand times better. It's not impossible. Uh, we can make a black body piece of plastic that's a thousand times better. And uh, detectors have improved at least a thousand times since we flew the COBE satellite. So Al Kogut has a device that he's designed uh, with our team. And uh, if somebody says go, we can, we can do that a thousand times better. Now, and what will you see? Well, something special and different because then you have a sensitivity enough to see does the universe behave itself the way you say, or is something weird and interesting going on? Well, that's what I was going to ask. Well, uh, the um, before I get there, I should say that's important too about space. I wonder if that's ever frustrated you. And it's one of the interesting things about Kobe, the, the timing. When you build a space experiment, it takes because it's so hard to do space experiments, you have to pick a technology and then test it and make sure it works in space and all the rest. And that means generally you're picking technologies that are maybe 10 years older than the best technology on Earth at the time because you have to you have to pick it and you have to make it make it work and that means that there's this interesting competition between yeah everything's better in space at some level but the technology on earth gets better and it's often interesting to see that competition and i remember vividly how within months of kobe coming out seeing some terrestrial experiments that could compete and it was just uh, it's fascinating that 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 leapfrogging that happens in science in this particular area of science yeah, yeah. and in particular for that experiment there was herb gush at uh, university of british columbia and he had a small rocket that went up and spent a few minutes measuring this same thing and uh 
he was able to get a lower temperature detector that was more sensitive than ours. And so he got a pretty decent measurement in a few minutes. That's the one I remember. I remember that's the one I, the, my co friends at university of British Columbia, who, I remember a young postdoc at the time, actually he's now a professor there. And, uh, um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And so it was, it was again, one of the, so that's what I mean by kind of luck in a way, because, and then interestingly, um, Interestingly, the other area of luck for Kobe, the other part of the Nobel Prize, which came from the fact, and I want to get to this thousand degree, the thousand times better in a second, but I want, let's go to Kobe, back to Kobe for a second. So the other remarkable discovery is not just that the universe is at a fine temperature, but that you could look at the primordial fluctuations that would lay, that were the signatures. We all know there are galaxies in the universe. And the question is, where do they come from? They had to come from things collapsing. So that means at early times, there had to be little excesses of matter and energy in different parts of the universe, but they couldn't be very, very big. We knew that because the universe, we'd already known they had to be very small. And in fact, there were, we, most of people thought they were so small that Colby would never see them. And, uh, and um, at least most of us theorists. Uh, and then this experiment discovered remarkably an image which showed with it, with a resolution, which nowadays, of course, has been way surpassed by their experiments, but enough to see that there you could actually discern what were primordial lumps versus all the stuff between that Mike, that microwave background here, the galaxy and all the other stuff you had to get rid of. And most of us thought, first of all, you'd never be able to get rid of the galaxy. And secondly, that the lumps would be far too small because already terrestrial experiments had already limited those, those anisotropies to be so small within a factor of two or so of what you actually saw. So it was kind of a very, and in fact, it's probably true that other experiments had seen it, but not didn't have the coverage to be able to know that they had been with confidence that they could, that what they were seeing was primordial and not noise. And it and it, again, it's an interesting bit of history of sociology of science within months of Kobe presenting this, hey, this is really primordial. All those other experiments were able to say, hey, we've seen this, we can see this, because they didn't have the comp. Well, it wasn't that they didn't have the confidence; they didn't have the ability to do what Kobe could do, which was get rid of the, the 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 atmosphere and everything else. It's kind of an amazing thing how suddenly. That's what I mean. How it changed everything because suddenly, most of us thought you'll never see it and you'll never be able to disentangle it. Kobe saw it, disentangle it, and suddenly it proved that everyone else could do the same thing and 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 opened up a whole new field. Yes, and there are a lot of stories about that. One of them is. Uh... Um, you know, those were times when uh, bad science was being published a lot yeah. and getting a lot of uh, public attention uh, with a cold fusion and uh, poly water and all kinds of stuff that just wasn't true. Um, and um, so we bent over backwards to make sure that everything we said was as true as we could possibly make it. So uh, we didn't want to just say we saw it in the data. We wanted to be able to say we tried really hard to find out if we were wrong. That's as Feynman uh, said. There you are so do. many ways. Uh, yeah. And uh, David Wilkinson uh, was absolutely of that uh, point of view that uh, um, I'd say not only don't believe everything you think, don't even believe everything you measure. It would be his motto. And uh -huh. so um, we worked and worked and worked to check everything that uh, Ned Wright had shown us. And after a while, yeah, those spots are just the way he said they were. We also had our own internal cross-check because I told you about the balloon experiment that carried mm -hmm. the other frequency. Our buddies that flew that were part of our, of our team. 
And so as we were getting close to publishing, they were able to say, yeah, we have done our first analysis of our balloon data and we see those same lumps in the same place. So yeah, that uh, we're both probably both right. Yeah, that's very so, important to be um, able to know. You, you, the bottom line is that noise happens, but noise fluctuates. And if you have, and, and so different experiments will see noise in, in different levels. But if you see the same thing in the same place, it's a good indication that it's not noise. Yeah. A problem. So we, we, it gave us courage. Uh, but I, I don't know if Dave Wilkinson was ever quite sure that we'd done the right thing uh, because he's a tough guy to convince. Yeah. Well, good. And that's good. We're glad he's part of our team. Yeah. No, you need so, that. You really um, need that. So, but it was uh, a, it, the upshot it, it, of all this. Sorry, go on. The major, major upshot of all of this was not only is there something there, but we have to go measure it better. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, was uh, a, it, it is worth all the immense effort that it's going to take to measure it better. So because when it, we started off, the uh, idea of the satellite was we have to measure as well as nature allows us to measure. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had an idea that nature was going to limit us because of the interference of the galaxy. Uh -huh. You know, our, the galaxy, the Milky Way that we live in is really pretty bright. There's yeah. a lot of electrons zipping around and crashing into things and then sending out microwaves. So uh, we knew how it worked, sort of. But we said, how are we going to be sure we can remove it from the data? Uh, where are there any directions that are clean? So anyway, we worked on that. We were pretty confident we could do that. But in, then after you've done it, then you feel a lot more sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so then after everybody saw the spots, we said, I, I think basically everybody interested in the microwave background said, now we know how hard we have to work. We have to work really hard, but we have ideas. Yeah, but you can so do it. There was, an eruption of, there was an eruption of uh, effort all around the world. Uh, every country had ideas. Everybody had ways to make better detectors, uh, ways to try to measure from the ground, ways to measure from balloons, everything. We had just a flood of experiments. So um, eventually, as I'm sure we were going to get to this, uh, we have two separate satellite experiments that mm -hmm. were built to follow up our discoveries. And of course, they number one, they got the same answer that we got, which is yeah. good, but yeah. they got a whole lot more detail, Yeah, uh, much sharper, finer maps. Now, what I never guessed and never appreciated when we're conceiving the mission was how important it would turn out to be that you would be able to measure the statistics of the spots. There would be so many spots, so much information about random stuff that you could compute um, a model of the universe that would match it within a few percent. Well, it, so that's I mean, though, that nobody knew that when we started. And no, I don't think we any of us believed it. I remember. Uh, at, uh, a few, uh, I was still um, at, at Yale, at the professor at Yale, and I remember uh, I, a colleague of mine, I was in physics and astronomy, a very f Gus Omler, well-known astronomer. Um, I remember going to his office and he's he, uh, arguing about something, and he said, the universe will conspire so that you can never measure any fundamental parameters. He was convinced of it, right? And that was in the late 80s. <laughs> Okay, and that was just mm -hmm. before, and and so I think what's really important to point out is how much, for especially for young people who may not appreciate this, or even the general public, is how much things have changed. That, and it, and there's no doubt that Kobe and the cosmic, the, the cosmic microwave background itself, this background from the Big Bang of radiation that comes from the Big Bang when the universe first uh, essentially became transparent to radiation when it was 300,000 years old. Um, and that radiation has been propagating, and, and that's what you're looking back for. That's why it's so important. You're looking at a baby picture of the universe. We should have probably even stressed that before now. But 
it turned cosmology from from an art to a science, from a to a precision science. When I was when I was a, a young professor then at Yale, we knew the expansion rate of the universe to a factor of two, or so, and and even that was not necessarily believable. And and other features were very roughly done. And now, you know, sixty years later, fifty years later, forty years later, actually, I'm younger than I think. Forty years later. Um, we now can measure cosmological parameters as a result of realizing you could do it. I mean, Kobe didn't measure, Kobe measured the temperature accurately, but the anisotropies, you know, we demonstrated they were there. But now we can measure things better than one part in a thousand. And it's just, it changes what you can say about the universe. And that's what I mean by changed everything. Not that it did it itself, but it pointed out that it could be done. And that's the important thing, I think, that it pointed out to the rest of us that, hey, suddenly this is really a field which can change what, the way we understand the universe, and it has in tremendous ways. Yeah, so now I have a question for you because I had the impression at the time we were proposing our vision that uh, theorists were not taking us seriously. And as we got closer and closer to launch, uh, more and more people started writing papers about what they thought we would see. So I thought if we were not flying this satellite, uh, this might be an empty field for theorists. So I wanted to know if that was how it felt to you. Well, it, it felt like it was a field that was deeply in need of, of, of um, a new observation, actually. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I was at Yale and I actually ran a workshop, maybe it was prescient, in the 1980s on the cosmic wave background, where I bought, brought experimentalists and theorists together to say, what could you learn if you could actually see something? That's, by the way, when I tried to convince Yale to hire George. But, um, uh, and at the time, people thought, nah, it's not going to result in anything. And, 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 and you know, it's, not, it's, it's always just going to have noise and, 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 and it's going to be a long effort. And so it, it, we, I, I have to say that I don't think anyone was optimistic that all of this great theory, I mean, the people who worked in it were hopeful, but... Um, but it was it was yeah, it just changed people's attitudes like that. And and I remember I'll have to tell you when well, I'll say it now a little story because I had a former graduate student of mine who worked with me when I was at Harvard when I was a junior fellow, and we'd worked on a theoretical uh, cosmology having to do with dark matter and 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 gravitational lensing. And he went off uh, to Oberlin College and and was a wonderful young man and wonderful teacher we were and, he, and you know when people go to Oberlin it generally means they're gonna have a teaching career and a few years later he contacted me uh, uh, and um, I'd moved to Yale and he had asked me for a lot of reference he said you know he'd really decided he really wanted to get involved in 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 something to do with real research and observation and really do it. so I wrote him a letter and I didn't I remember it was some NASA thing and I didn't even know what it was I said okay he's a good really good guy you know hire him and then and then Kobe came out and I got a letter from this former student, Gary Hinshaw, um, who then said, boy, I'm so glad you re recommended me. And I realized it was Kobe. I had no, I had no idea. And it was uh, yeah. because I didn't, to me, it just didn't seem like, yeah, yet another NASA experiment that wouldn't work. So, <laughs> yeah. So what people probably couldn't appreciate in 1985 or so was how dramatic the progress would be in technology. Yeah. So when I say we have a thousand times better experiment we could do today, um, well, we have that in so many areas. Um, Kobe satellite had, oh, six, I guess, microwave receivers. Now, um, an apparatus in the mountaintop uh, in Chile will have like 10,000. Yeah. And they're much better. 
So uh, we've had uh, vast progress in uh, what you can build and how sensitive it is. And so it's not too much wonderful. It's not so surprising that we've been able to, able to interpret it so much better. Yeah. We've got a lot more than nobody could have anticipated this uh, tremendous revolution in technology. Absolutely. And, and, you know, actually, that's how I met Dahl Richards, by the way, I was interested in measuring dark matter. And I, and as a theorist who was interested in experiments, we got interested in something called bolometry. And, uh, and I ran a workshop and Paul came, we were thinking about new ways to use this to measure dark matter. And the technologies are, are, are fascinating and seductive. And I, that's why, as a, someone who was a mathematical physicist, originally, I got interested more and more because the technology is so fascinating. Let's talk about that technological change and go back to that factor of 1000. If you could measure it a fact, uh, the, just the temperature a thousand times better, what could you do? You would be able to see uh, all kinds of energy release patterns in the early universe that are undetectable today. So um, we're talking now about the spectrum of the cosmic microwave background, something that follows this black body curve to parts per million accuracy. Well, um, but stuff goes on which is not in local thermodynamic equilibrium. Something's at a different temperature from something else. So it can change that thing that you're looking at. So you should be able to see um, at very long wavelengths, uh, signs of a, a plasma of the early universe being a different temperature. So this is getting a little detailed, but you know, after the universe starts expanding, it's at first extremely hot and it's just all one temperature and it's a mix of electrons and yeah. protons and other hot particles. Then at a certain point when the universe is about 400,000 years old, it suddenly rather suddenly becomes transparent as all the electrons find homes on atomic nuclei. So bam, suddenly we get a picture of the early universe as it was then. And then uh, the first approximation is, well, those photons just go in straight lines until they get to, uh, until we can see them. Um, but that's not a completely good approximation. So several things happen along the way. One is, uh, the photons run past gravitating objects. So they get, their paths get bent. Uh, it's called gravitational lensing. Mm -hmm. So it has a huge effect on uh, the tiny spots that we see with the better experiments today. The other is um, that um, the temperature of that stuff after that time is not all the same temperature as the rest of the universe. And so something that can be hotter or colder uh, can affect what we see. So we're beginning to have hints that something's mm -hmm. different there. So it's a way to look at what we call the cosmic dark ages. Yeah, the cosmic. period of time between um, the release of the photons to go running about by themselves and the, and the time and now um, there's a period where something happened and the first stars and galaxies lit up, uh, the plasma got hotter or colder. Uh, we'd like to know all that. And there should be signs of this in the spectrum of the background radiation that you should be able to see. Well, yeah, in fact, and, looking. yeah, and it's and it's also important to realize that this universe becoming transparent didn't do it instantaneously. It took some time and that and therefore yes. there there therefore and 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 there wasn't just there wasn't uh, and so there was a there was helium also primordial helium and and so things were not necessarily all at the same temperature because the transparency would change over time. So you'd be able to look for that too, which I think is really, really for me of, of great interest. And, and uh, yeah, uh, and one of the tiny effects that you might imagine, uh, maybe you can't see it, is that of course, each hydrogen atom, um, as, it, as the, each electron latches onto its proton, it emits particular uh, frequencies of light 
um, the, what's called the Lyman series or the others that uh, hydrogen can produce. And depending on whether the hydrogen is hotter or colder than the radiation, either these will be seen as brighter or darker than the rest of the radiation. So should be able to see it. It's like looking at the chemistry of the sun, um, but looking way back to those earliest times. So yeah. okay, that'd be fascinating if you can do it. And I have I don't to say, think we have, I don't think we'll see it, but you know, it's sort of interesting to think about it. And then, you know, and as a theorist, I should point out one of the neatest things is not thinking about what you could see, but discovering the stuff that you didn't think about you could see. And as a theorist, it not, that, that's, what, that's why we have to keep looking. It's because the imagination nature far exceeds our own. But I have to say, again, as a theorist talking to you as an experimentalist, I've experienced that time in and time out. I've written papers after experiments proposing something or explaining something that I thought to myself, I could have written that 10 years ago. But until the experiment is done, you never take things seriously. It's happened in accelerators that I, I've written papers after the W and Z were discovered. But I do remember vividly with a, with a, a former student of mine who's now at Berkeley, a guy named Martin White, um, when I was at Yale, uh, when Kobe came out, and I, I had known this, I'd been thinking about something called gravitational waves from the early universe from a thing called inflation. And I realized that, that hey, that, that these anisotropies looked like they could be what you call a quadrupole, the COVID stuff. And we wrote a paper saying, actually, the whole thing could be a quadrupole and it could be a gravitational wave that you saw, not just that, you know, in anisotropies. And that's, again, something I could have done years earlier. But until I saw that, um, I didn't take it seriously. And it turns out that, you know, looking for gravitational waves in, in, has since become, in, in the cosmic background, has since become significant but I, and, and so we thought about it right then but i never thought about it earlier because i didn't take it seriously so what may come yeah. out of your next experiment i mean i'm very happy we latched onto that early and it's that made it made a big impact but 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 still from the point of view of your experiment what is most interesting that might come out of the experiment of you of looking for things with a new window a thousand times better than before is not what you and i are talking about now about what you could see but what you and i have no idea about we might see. And I think that's the neat, neatest yeah. part about being an observer in general. Yeah, well, your story has an interesting parallel in exoplanets. I guess you're aware of this. Um, astronomers looked for exoplanets, uh, little planets orbiting other stars, just like Earth in the solar system. Yeah. And uh, they were completely shocked when they found that the other solar systems are not like ours. And they would have been so easy to look for if we'd bothered to think about that. Yeah. So uh, two guys got the Nobel Prize for thinking out of the box, as they say. Yeah, yeah, day. no, and I, Jeff Marcy at Berkeley, and, who I, I know is was involved in that, and yeah, and they, they and we've done a podcast with him, and, and he, they, yeah, it's it. It turns out our solar system, we always think you're typical, and our our solar system may be the exception rather than the rule. In fact, it's beginning to look like it. Anyway, uh, I asked uh, people why why didn't we predict any of these things, and uh, it's the same as your story. Um, it didn't seem important to work on it. And, and uh, I've talked to people who said, well, I could have predicted this, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So your story is pretty common. So uh, David Bennett says, well, everything we know about exoplanets has been a surprise. Yeah, and, and, and but that's why, I mean, that's why we need, I mean, physics is an experimental science and that's, we have to remember that as a theorist, I'm humbled by that, but the theorists get a lot of airtime, you know, and a lot of, oh yeah, except, you know, thinking of the Einstein thing and we get yeah. a lot of people talking to us because we sound, you know, whatever, but, but, but we shouldn't get carried away. And I've used to say that about string theory in particular, but 
it's it's driven by experiment. It's driven by experiment, and not only is experiment confirmed theory, but experiment drives what we think about and the way we think about things. And it it, it should remain that way for a variety of reasons. Because one, we need to be grounded in reality, but two, we need to realize, as I've said, that the surprises come. That this that nature tells us that what we're thinking about wasn't necessarily the right thing. And if we lock theorists in a room now and out ask them what we're going to see 40 years from now, they'd all be, be wrong in a sense. I mean, except it's about the stuff we already know. But about the stuff we don't know, it's uh, 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 it's it's really important. Now, yeah. let's talk about another experiment that's going to, that just, I want to move to, to in the last half hour or so of this, of, of, of two, of the, you turn from, obviously from Colby to um, another very important experiment, which is just beginning, an observatory, which is just, come online in its own way. And then you've been the lead project scientist on, I believe. And that's, of course, the James Webb Space Telescope. Why don't you talk to us about its nascence and, and its its little story before we talk about what it might see? Sure. Yeah, well, so two parts of that. One is my part, which is I was thinking, well, I finished the Kobe satellite. Uh, what do I do now? So I started drawing sketches of telescopes that unfold in outer space because I thought, well, uh, we're building the Spitzer Space Telescope, but it didn't have that name yet, yeah, but, but it's not big enough. Um, so can't we get one that unfolds? And I found a few other people who were talking about that. And I gave a talk to my Goddard laboratory and people laughed at me and said, that's too hard, we'll never do that. And uh, meanwhile, there was a committee uh, uh, charged, uh, under the charge of Alan Dressler uh, that had been uh, created to study what are we going to do after the Hubble? So they were working on it and they wrote a beautiful book that said, we need a telescope that's bigger than Hubble uh, and is capable of doing infrared astronomy because we'd seen what the Hubble could do after it got fixed and it was beautiful and wonderful and inspiring. And it still said, you know, we still didn't see the first galaxies. Uh, and why didn't we see them? It's because they happened so quickly. Uh, and they happened very soon after the expansion began and uh, that means that when we look for them, they come to us as very red or even infrared galaxies. Well, and let me so explain. Let me stop. Possibly see them. Let me stop yeah. again and explain that for for people why they're red. The point is, because the universe is expanding, radiation from farther away gets more and more shifted towards a long wavelengths of the spectrum, and so we can measure what's called the redshift, and all we can tell how far objects are away by their redshift. The objects that are further away. Uh, that light has been traveling longer and shifted more as the universe has it's had more time to expand along with the universe and so we call it a redshift and so it, galaxies that early on of course would have emitted visible light we would see now if they were early enough we'd see that light in the infrared i just wanted to give some background for that okay so go on mm -hmm. yeah so that's exactly what um, what are we concerned about as uh, we if you really want to see how it started how did the galaxies grow um, we've got this picture of the early universe with the hot and cold spots in the Big Bang material. Uh, we've got a story that we can now tell about gravity and how it's supposed to work. Um, we haven't found any mistakes in that story yet, but can we really see? Um, it's still very hypothetical. What's the first object that grew and how did it do it? So um, the book says, let's go find it. Build us a bigger telescope that can is big enough to be sensitive and pick up the infrared light. So that's the little book, and it's a very inspiring little book. It's called HST, which is Hubble Space Telescope and Beyond. 
and says two things. Number one, build this telescope. And number two, uh, invest in the technology to see little planets like Earth orbiting sun-like stars. And so they knew that was really, really hard, but they said, we better start. Well, it was very uh, pressing of them to think it. of that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So there were some different ideas though in those days as to how to do it. But at any rate, uh, they were writing this book. And so uh, NASA headquarters was talking to them. And so I got this phone message one day that says, we're going to start a study of this new telescope. Do you want to work on it? <laughs> oh, man, do I want to work on that? So I dropped everything I was doing. I was working with Chuck Bennett on the WMAP proposal. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I said, well, I think Chuck can do this better than I can anyway. I'm going to work on this web telescope. It wasn't called webbed yet. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, so I dropped everything and I've been doing it ever since. So that was, what, what uh, year was that? I think October 30th, October 30th of 95, I think. 95. So Again, it's to show people 26 what... years that we've been doing this. Yeah, now that's that's so, what I'm saying. You have to you have to be willing to work 26 years. And uh, anyway, well, go on. But to me, it was never a matter of how long is it going to take. Is it, it is absolutely worth doing. It is the best thing I could be working on. Yeah. So I don't care how long it's going to take as long as it's going to go. Yeah. And uh, and I knew it was because uh, number one, it's unique. Uh, mm -hmm. There is no other possible way to get at this information. And number two, uh, the director of NASA administrator was Dan Golden, and he said he wanted it. He went and spoke to the Astronomical Society. He said, we're going to do it only bigger. You got a standing ovation. Well, I man, remember isn't that a good there. peer review, eh? Peer review. Yeah. Uh, okay, so everybody volunteered, uh, engineers and scientists volunteered right away to work on this telescope, and we didn't have to go recruit. Everybody wanted to work on it. So uh, we found a way, and it took you, a long time. But It we took a long a time, but when you say you knew it was going to happen, let me, let me step back, because I remember sending, uh, I remember testifying once before Congress, but I remember there were many times when it didn't look like it was going to happen, because it was expensive. And unfortunately, in this country, even after projects are approved, uh, they kept the, the way with the way science funding works. Big projects can be canceled as new administrations come in, and and it was, there was twenty five years for it to it, twenty five opportunities for Congress to kill it. it, and and there were several times yeah. when it came close. Were you worried? I remember you and I talked oh, about oh, how uh, how we yeah. could do. Do you remember I wrote you and said how could we help to how could I help to to yeah. encourage yeah. people to spend. Um, yeah, Sorry. I don't remember that very much. I just remember thinking, well, it's, uh, as they say, NASA way above my pay grade. Somebody else has to figure this out. Okay. And, uh, you know, for my position, uh, I don't get to go out and uh, and uh, campaign. Yeah, uh, because... Civil servants uh, like me, uh, we're represented uh, to the Congress by our administration. Yeah. Um, our budget goes through the budget process and the Office of Management and Budget has to say, here's the budget. So it's all mysterious to me, but I knew there were good forces that were in our favor. And uh, someday I may know who they all were, but of course, important to mention our Senator Mikulski, uh, yeah. a very powerful advocate for science of all sorts and especially astronomy. Um, she was a Senator who wanted to be a scientist. And, well, I, I had uh, known that about her. I knew, I knew that she was very strong advocate for uh, yeah, yeah, she wanted. She saw the movie about Marie Curie when she was a uh, girl. Uh, and she wanted to do that, so she started off, but then she ended up doing other things and becoming a politician. But always spoke warmly and brilliantly about how the scientific enterprise was so important for all humanity. Uh, and so, um, so she took a personal interest, and uh, 
she was very disappointed with the price that we needed to have. And she was upset with us. And so she sent us a letter, said, uh, please figure this out. Better get some external review. Uh, I can't just go forward to my con the rest of my world and say this is great. I have to have somebody who proves that this is great. So uh, NASA organized two review committees uh, from outside to say, is this the right thing? Uh, is there any other way to do this mission? And are we doing the right part of the mission? Is, are we testing it correctly? So basically, is there any other way to do it better and cheaper? The upshot was not only uh, is there no other way to do it, but it is really going to cost you more money and uh, and more time. So, um, and that's I guess that... the combination of all these forces made it work. But I don't know how. It, to me, it's magic. Well, it's good that you were just you were focusing on what needed to be done to make it happen and letting other people worry about the other problems. I, but they were worrisome. But but I think. Um, that's another issue I want. I think I, I'm looking for mo not morals, but but way impacts that these stories should have for people. And it and a lot of people think scientists want to spend money just to spend money. You know, oh, gee, this big accelerator costs ten billion dollars or this telescope costs ten billion dollars. And the answer is scientists want to spend as little money as they can to do what is necessary to do. And if there was a way to build that telescope for fifty dollars, you'd be you'd be given the money yourself to do it. Yeah, yeah, we'd do it. Of course we would. Yeah. Um, but so but it, the critical question, is there any other way to do this? And as far as we know, there still is no other way. Yeah, and I think that's really an important factor. It was it's an expense. On the other hand, you know, a billion dollars used to be a lot of money. <laughs> and ten billion dollars used to be a lot of money. But now it's trillions of dollars. So, but but but, uh, you know, when we talk about spending that kind of money, it's worthwhile people realizing that what i don't know what the telescope cost in the end close to 10 billion i forget what uh, about yeah. about 10 billion dollars that's the quantum more or less of big projects and but that's 10 billion spent over 25 years and when you think about that and the amount of money that's spent compared to almost anything else that's really a, a, such a small percentage of the of the overall budget and and if we can't um if we can't spend that kind of money to ask fundamental questions about ourselves it says something about us uh that my my favorite story about this in in in, in regards is uh, i don't know if you knew uh robert wilson who was the first head of a uh, of fermilab um who mm -hmm. who uh, uh who uh who was asked testified before congress and was asked if it would help in the defense of the nation and he said no but it'll help keep the nation worth defending because the you know yes, the discoveries know you make quote, yeah yeah and I think it's a very important quote and 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 these fundamental questions that we ask about ourselves if, if at some level uh, they're they're what keep us going as a culture so I think it's very important if people didn't need to hear that I it's uh, it, it's yeah. profound but let's talk about what JWST um, is going to do it, we know it was designed in part to look for the first light the first or to tell us whether our pictures of how those lumps in the microwave background eventually became galaxies and and all sorts of chicken and egg questions that we don't have the answers to did black holes form at the beginning before galaxies and cause galaxies to converge around them or did they galaxies merge and form black holes a lot of questions that we don't know the answer to and the only way we'll have the answer is by seeing them so first light which we now know happened with maybe within about 500 million years or less of the big bang so that's why you need a telescope that's both large, so it can resolve these things, and also infrared, so that it can look back at those times. So those are two parameters of the telescope. 
But there's, but we also know, as as these very prescient guys pointed out, that we it would be great to have new telescopes that could look for planets. So you want you want to talk me through that as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so, well, first of all, what are we going to do about planets with the web? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so, what I mean. Um, that's what I'm talking about. Them, a few of them that are big enough and bright enough uh, that they should look like a little dot sitting next to the star. So we have equipment called a coronagraph and three of our four instruments to look for those. Now, when we and, see and, those, and, they're not going to be. There will not be like Earth. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to interrupt you again because people might not know what a coronagraph is and why that's going to help you look. The point is, the planets are there, but the star is very bright. So what you want to have is something that will basically, you know, like you do when you're in your car, when you're driving your car, you want to you want to see the, the horizon. You put your flap down to get rid of the sun so you can see the horizon and you can see the road in front of you. And a coronagraph is a sophisticated version of that that basically blocks out the starlight so that you can see the fainter stuff near it. So sorry, I just wanted to interrupt so people yeah, know. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Uh, that's, we do have that. And so we'll be able to see some planets with that, but they'll be big ones. Yeah. especially young ones when they're young they're still pretty bright because they have their own heat that they were still warm from being born mm -hmm. the other way that we have is to go uh, and watch when a planet goes in front of its star it's called a transit so well okay we already have a lot of catalogs uh, of these objects we know when the little planet goes in front of its star so uh, we know about them uh, but we don't know much about them we know they're there we know roughly how big they are because we know how much light they're blocking from their planet. I mean, from their star. Uh, but now what we can do that hasn't been done before is to look for the starlight that goes through the atmosphere of the planet on its way to our telescope. So this is a very tricky thing. It's, um, well, here's the star and it just sits there and we get a spectrum. We spread the light out into the colors. Then we get a planet that goes in front of it and it gets a little fainter. But now does it change the spectrum? or or does it not and so that's the question if it has an atmosphere it can change the spectrum uh, because uh, molecules in the atmosphere of the planet absorb wavelengths some wavelengths and not others mm -hmm. so that means the planet looks bigger at some wavelengths than others so we should be able to tell but there's a really hard measurement so we're going to do this we've got uh, about uh, 60 planets in the list that we're going to look at the first year and a handful of them are small enough that um, they could be like Earth, a lot more bigger ones that are easier to study. But what, are we, what might we find? We are kind of hoping that some of them will have an atmosphere with water vapor. And that would be really cool because the, the ones we're looking at are uh, little planets around little stars. They're called M stars. So uh -huh. these are kind of hostile little stars. They have solar storms all the time. Uh, and so maybe those solar storms, uh, stellar storms are blasting away at, and removing the atmosphere of the planets, and maybe they're not. So that's our first big question. Are there atmospheres? And the second, uh, if there is, uh, is there water enough maybe to have an ocean on a planet out there? So this would be our first hint they will ever have that there really is a planet out there that could have life like ours. That's, now, I mean, don't see the hint. It doesn't mean there's no life. It just means that we can't tell. Yeah, just me. The absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, as Carl Singh would say. But the yeah. the uh, the the key point is that what makes it so exciting is not just seeing the planets, but being able to see the atmospheres. Water is a first step, but but the key point uh, that we want to emphasize, and we still don't know all of the ways to do this in ironclad 
in spite of a lot of the hype that's been discussed. But we know life has dramatically changed the atmosphere of Earth. It's, there's free oxygen because of life. There wasn't before. That doesn't mean there can't be free oxygen if there isn't life. But, but there are many features. Life has changed the planet. So by looking at the atmosphere, you might, if you found, you know, just seeing free oxygen might not be enough. But, but if you found enough things that were key factors, you might say, well, the evidence is such that it's hard to explain all of these things in the atmosphere if there isn't some form of life like life on Earth, which would be fascinating it's going to be a long hard slog but that that but let me ask you another question it's also true i think that you're because you're you're the jwst is looking for infrared light planets not only just absorb light but they also emit light they're warm and therefore like the earth emits radiation at a temperature about 15 degrees celsius um and therefore we're right the earth is radiating as a as a warm body in the infrared okay and um, and that's one of the reasons that climate change happens, in fact, and, and carbon has such, such a big effect on it because it absorbs that infrared light that would otherwise make it into space, heating up the Earth. So you're also sensitive to the radiation emitted by planets as well as absorbed, right? Yes, we are. Uh, but um, it's, again, the problem about the coronagraph. The star is so much brighter than the planet yeah. <clears throat> that it's pretty hard to tell unless the planet is itself very bright. So it could be. We'll be looking. You, you don't know. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, speaking not about expecting could... to see a little, we're not expecting to see a little Earth. This yeah. Way. Yeah. No. No. But maybe. Um, but uh, maybe a Jupiter. We should. A Jupiter. Yeah, Jupiter. So we we've found some pretty extreme planets already, um, and so we can tell they must be a thousand degrees. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe with uh, molten iron. Uh, maybe uh, uh, iron rain. You yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. Well, that's. I was just going to say. Those are the two big things one hears about JWC, the, early, the cosmic dawn and, and, and planets and maybe life. What are the other things you, that, uh, that, that you think it might do? And of course, the most important things, not maybe the most important, but the great things are the things that will do that we have no idea that will do. But what, what are yeah. the other things that you hope might come up from JWST? Well, I'll tell you what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, we're gonna be looking at, uh, oops, gotta get my ear back in we're going to be looking at uh um basically um empty places in the sky like we've looked at for, for with hubble to see well, the most distant galaxies and we got a method to do that we'll be looking at uh, places where stars are being born today uh inside those beautiful clouds of glowing gas and dust like the eagle nebula and the orion nebula so we know where to look because uh, stuff is happening um, but the uh, the use of infrared light lets us see better inside those clouds. Uh, infrared light has the ability to go around a dust grain instead of just bouncing off. So when you see that beautiful opaque cloud of dust, you say, gee, I wish I could see through it. Well, you can if you use infrared light. So we'll be studying the insides and hopefully finding out how stars are growing in there with their own little disks of planets around them. So we know where to look. Not quite sure what we're going to see. Uh, we'll be looking um, at planets in the solar system. Uh, obviously, this is the place to look if you want to see a planet. We got nine of them. Mm -hmm. uh, we can see of them, all of them from Mars on outwards with the Webb telescope. Uh, the others we can't see because they're too close to the sun. We can't look that direction. So we'll be looking at everything all out to Pluto and even beyond. I'm glad to um, see that you, like me, are old enough to think, say, we have nine planets, by the way. It shows oh, our, yeah, at least yeah, shows our age, it, nothing it shows else. Our age. Well, it's. <laughs> Um, it's a dwarf planet, but it's a yeah, planet. So it's a planet. It'll always be a planet to me. 
Forget what yeah. I argued with Neil Dyson about this a lot, but go on. <laughs> yeah, so it, it is different. Anyway, we'll be looking at everything because that's where we can get evidence of what's going on locally. So two really interesting places to look, well, is Europa, which yeah. we know we're going to go visit with a NASA probe. Uh, and so um, we know Europa has an ocean covered with ice and there's water spitting out here and there. So we're gonna fly through the water plumes and see if they're full of organic molecules. We're still gonna look at that, of course, with a web. Yeah, um, we're gonna say, let really make it clear. Let me make it clear that's not web is gonna, web isn't gonna fly through just, just so people realize. We're not, we're that's not a going there. That's, a, that's, that's a, a NASA mission. NASA yeah, just so people understand yeah. that. Okay. Right. Okay. The other thing, we're, we're planning a visit to Titan which is a satellite of Saturn. It's such a big satellite that it has its own atmosphere with a lot of nitrogen and a weak enough gravity that you can imagine building a helicopter. So we are sending a helicopter as well as a chemistry lab to the land on Titan. So we're gonna be watching Titan with the Webb telescope also. Okay, so. should be watching Titan. With, so you can watch within our atmosphere and there you can, the infrared radiation will be quite an, an important way of looking at things. And, and of course, let's remember mm -hmm. it's also much bigger. It's a be it's a better resolving telescope than Hubble by uh, a factor yeah. of maybe a hundred or something. And uh, um, yeah, what it it's, what, it's, it's not that much bigger, but anyway, it does. It's no, no, not not that much bigger, do. but it's resolving. But it's it's size is what six times bigger. But that means its area is you know something no, like it's it's uh, its area is about seven times bigger. Seven so, area is seven times bigger. Okay. Yeah, so it's much more sensitive especially at the infrared wavelengths. Yeah, right, it's size, so, it's, sorry, it's two times bigger. In fact, we already got pictures that show that the image quality is better than what we could get on Hubble. Yeah, uh, you know, I saw the first picture, by the way, I wanted to ask you about that, at least the first picture that was released with all the background yeah. of galaxies. You know, the big excitement was supposed to be that star and the beautiful the beautiful lines yeah. coming out of it. But for me, it was all those amazing galaxies behind it, the, the, the yeah. photobomb. Yeah, yeah, as I say, photobomb, that's a new term to me, but at any rate, uh, uh, yeah, the galaxies everywhere, and uh, we presume that many of them have never been seen before, because we've never had this kind of equipment before. Yeah, so it, that'll be it'll be fascinating. So what it'll see, we know the things it's looking for and the obvious places to look, but what it'll see, we have no idea. And the fact that it's working so beautifully, congratulations to you and your team. It yeah. is amazing. I'm always amazed when these things. I mean, just the incredible. Uh, technology and all of the things that could go wrong, and you're quite aware of them after your days in ballooning, uh, that could go wrong, oh, yeah. that, 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 that haven't. And that's one of the reasons it costs so much money, because you don't want to put some, something up there and have the antenna fall off. And, uh, and, yeah, so, absolutely. and so. so that's why you have to make sure it works. And a lot of the money that's spent is to make sure that it'll work. What was the scare? By the way, I, 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 this is the kind of question journalists would ask, so I don't want to ask many of these kind of questions. But what was the scariest moment for you with the in the in the of all the steps, the launch, the opening of the of uh, of it, and etc. Was there a scary moment? Actually, for me, there was not a scary moment. Okay, uh, I just felt all along that we have done what we should do. Uh, we have uh, we had a risk management plan. We had a seven thousand things in our list of risks, wow. and we chewed on all of them until we were pretty sure we had done the right thing. We had almost seven thousand uh, requirements to check off. And we analyzed them all and we checked them off. So we're pretty systematic about getting this right. So isn't not, uh, well, I think it's okay. Why don't we launch? This is, we've done everything we should. So you can be nervous if you want, but it's not required. Well, that's amazing. Uh, well, the just, launch though, you can't control I, the rocket ship. 
You can't control a rocket no, ship, and that's always no, a concern. I know, but again, uh, I've always looked at this and say, well, you know, um, worrying, my worrying isn't going to affect anything. I'm just going to enjoy this because here is this great accomplishment of humanity that's going up on this terrifying rocket, but I'm not terrified. I'm just proud. Oh, wow. That's a wonder. Oh, that's a wonderful quote. I'll remember that. That's great. I hope people that will maybe we'll quote that in the, in the, in the podcast. Cause I think that, yeah, I, I will when I, when I write the summary of it. Okay. In the last few minutes, I want to talk about, as you point out to me, Hey, I'm not just resting on my laurels here. I've got some other new projects that I'm quite excited about. So why don't we spend a few minutes Orca, is it Orcas? And, yeah, and Orcas, yes. Hoey, and, and, and Hoey or something yes. like, I don't know how to pronounce yes, that. Yes, indeed. So yeah. why don't you tell us about I'll those? I'll tell you briefly. So um, from childhood, I wanted to worry about how come we get blurry pictures through atmospheric distortion when we try to do astronomy. So a new idea is now not so new, but why don't we have a laser beacon in space to focus on? And so if you could poke post a laser beacon in front of your target star and look at look up from the ground with a telescope, you could focus on the laser beacon and it would compensate for the turbulent atmosphere. Yeah. So, well, this is a little hard to do, but um, everything's hard to do. So uh, we don't have anything that works very well yet for visible wavelengths. The things let, you let, and I can see, uh, we can't do this technology yet. Well, let so, me just jump ahead for before we get to the one in space, you're going to talk about having a laser come down. We do do this to some extent. It's called adaptive optics. It's changed the field. Mm -hmm. We send a laser through the atmosphere at, that we know will excite radiation at a certain point in the atmosphere and use it as a sort of artificial guide star in the atmosphere. And, and then we can see we can determine the turbulence up to that point. So that's been an important proven technology. I remember when it was, again, just being proposed, it was amazing to me because then you've got to get that information and get your telescope to respond fast enough to account for those turbulences. Once again, I figured it'd be never be, never be possible. But once again, I underestimated observers and it has yeah. been. And so this is a next step of that. So go, in, go on. Yeah, it's, it's a next step. So this is a way to make it work better at really short wavelengths, uh, which are in some ways the best because the sky is really dark. Mm -hmm. at the visible wavelengths. So that's an idea um, where we know how to do it roughly. Uh, we haven't gotten anybody to say, yes, we'll do it, um, but we're working on it. We did a pretty thorough study of it, so we know what to do. Um, the other thing I've been working on is uh, called a hybrid observatory. So this is to, in order to be able to see those little earths way out there. Um, well, we need a coronagraph to block the starlight. Well, how about if I put something in space to cast a shadow of the star onto a whole telescope? And so what it needs to be is about 100 meters. That's the biggest two football fields uh -huh. um, across, uh, shaped like a pointy sunflower, and needs to hover in front of the star for an hour or something like that so you can see something. So we know roughly what it takes, but it's almost the, well, this is really hard. So yeah, I've got Cox. a recent proposal. I've got an oh. approval from NASA to uh, do a preliminary study on how you would do this. Yeah. Wow. So okay. it's a mechanical engineering job to sure, make something yeah. that big uh, that you can still lift. Yeah. No, so. I actually, I remember colleagues of mine at, 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 when I was chair at Case Western Reserve had proposed doing that, putting something in space that, I mean, you know, out there that basically blocks the star if it's far enough, if it's, if it's near a telescope, but far enough away, it can float in front of the star and, and just block yeah, it. And you want to design I, I know, this. Yeah, I know those guys who are 
They, they proposed to use it with the Webb telescope. Yeah, they, exactly. They proposed it with the Webb telescope at the time. Yeah. It was a great idea, but we didn't do it. Yeah. So um, anyway, so in the back of my mind, when uh, when they told me this, are you sure you can't do this with a telescope on the ground? And so eventually I said, yeah, I found a way. Oh, wow. At least in principle. In principle. So wow. we'll come back to you later on and tell you how we did that. Well, I hope so. I hope so, John. This has been... Uh, this has been um... Uh, fascinating, of course, and I think enlightening in many ways, I hope for many of the people who listen, but but what I think is really so important is to see the the optimistic attitude of saying, we can do this, let's just put our nose to the grindstone and just do it and not let anything get in the way and just, as you say, not being worried, but be proud and, uh, and I'm glad, yeah. that, and I'm obviously proud of what you've done, I'm glad you are and it's been uh, yeah. it's always been a pleasure to to talk to you and i think this has uh, illustrated so many of the reasons that science is such a wonderful field to be a part of and i feel lucky uh, every day to be a part of it and have colleagues like you so thanks a lot thank you very much well thank you larry it's been a pleasure to talk with you and i look forward to uh, seeing this uh, turn up on the internet I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.